إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد تريذن إن شاء الله تعالى We begin with this new course the course that is going to discuss some of the most basic and principal aspects of our religion aspects of our religion that every muslim needs to be aware of aspects and principles of our religion that every believer needs to be upon knowledge with because there is a certain level of knowledge all of us must have it is not possible for you to excuse yourself from the very basics of the religion a person he asks you what is the meaning of iman in allah you cannot excuse yourself from that question You cannot say ask a student of knowledge how can you not know what the iman in Allah is if somebody asks you what is the iman in the angels you cannot excuse yourself from that question iman in the angels a pillar from the pillars of iman how could you not know iman in the prophets iman in the books iman in the day of judgment iman in the decree these are from the principal aspects of our religion that we must all have knowledge of and so now then we begin today with this course which is expected to last at least 6 sessions 6 sessions and maybe more if we add extra detail onto some of the points it is important for everyone particularly now with this being the first session after ramadan it is important for everyone to recollect and to remember their intention that they are seeking knowledge for the sake of allah knowledge is sought to remove ignorance from yourself and to remove ignorance from others it is sought sincerely for the sake of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as allah mentioned in the quran wa ma umiru illa li'abudu allah mukhlisina lahu ad-din hunafa that they were not commanded except to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon sincerity this seeking of knowledge is an act of worship seeking knowledge is an act of worship it is ibadah because this act of worship in seeking knowledge it enables you 
to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala properly. Because without knowledge, you would be upon ignorance. You would be upon jahl, not knowing how to worship your Lord. So the importance of this knowledge is tremendous. The importance of learning about your religion is great. And that is why the Prophet ﷺ informed us, مَنْ سَلَكَ طَرِيقًا يَلْتَمِسُ فِيهِ عِلْمًا سَهَّلَ اللَّهُ لَهُ بِهِ طَرِيقًا إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ Whomsoever treads upon a path, seeking by it knowledge, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make that person's pathway to paradise easy. Because of that treading in seeking knowledge, that striving in seeking knowledge he did, and then practicing it in his worship, it makes his path to paradise easy. Similarly, the Prophet ﷺ mentioned, مَنْ يُرِدِ اللَّهُ بِهِ خَيْرًا Whomsoever Allah wants goodness for, then He gives him knowledge of the religion, detailed knowledge of the religion. Whomsoever Allah wants goodness for, Allah gives him detailed knowledge of the religion. And that is why Allah also mentioned in the Qur'an, هَلْ يَسْتَوِ الَّذِينَ يَعْلَمُونَ وَالَّذِينَ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ Are they equal, the ones who know and the ones who do not know? Certainly they are not equal, as Shaykh Al-Athaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned, because the one with knowledge is superior than the one who is jahil and ignorant. The one who strives to learn about his religion compared to the one who is lazy and does not bother, does not bring himself to the gatherings of knowledge, does not bring himself to those gatherings that the Prophet ﷺ said regarding, إِلَّا نَزَلَتْ عَلَيْهِمُ السَّكِينَ وَحَفَّتْهُمُ الْمَلَائِكَةَ وَغَشِيَتْهُمُ الرَّحْمَةِ That a people, a group of people, do not come together in a house from the houses of Allah, except that the mercy descends upon them. They come together studying the Qur'an, learning this religion, except that the mercy will descend upon them, and the tranquility upon them, and the angels they surround them. These are the virtues mentioned of the gatherings of knowledge, the gatherings where the Qur'an and the Sunnah are being learnt. So what a blessing and glad tidings for those who strive, and they attend the gatherings of knowledge. And they put aside time in their schedules fixed for the purpose of knowledge, prioritized for the gatherings of knowledge. Glad tidings to them who strive on a weekly basis, 
attending the gatherings of knowledge on a weekly basis with consistency, with consistency, not attending when you feel like it, and missing when you feel like it, attending when you can be bothered, and missing when you cannot. That is not the way of the student of knowledge. The one who sincerely desires to learn about his religion, the religion that Allah has chosen for us, Islam. that indeed the religion with Allah is Al-Islam. وَمَنْ يَبْتَغِي غَيْرَ الْإِسْلَامِ دِينًا Whomsoever seeks a religion other than Islam, then it will not be accepted from him. Glad tidings to those who recognize the importance of that. Glad tidings to those who recognize the importance of their creation, the importance of their existence upon this earth, the importance of learning and studying their religion. So glad tidings to those who have that sincerity of intention and that focus in studying and they prioritize it. They prioritize the gatherings of knowledge over and above their affairs that they have. They prioritize that one or two or three gatherings of knowledge a week over and above the other affairs in their timetables. Glad tidings to them. They will benefit themselves insha'Allah. They will benefit their families. And they will be from those insha'Allah ta'ala who their path is made easy to paradise because of their striving in seeking this knowledge. But what therefore, what therefore of those who are not in that category, what therefore of those whose lives they pass them by upon ignorance and no striving, attending a gathering here or there, attending a lesson here or there, not having any focus, upon the only thing that they should be focused upon, which is learning how to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How will you rectify yourself? How will you rectify your family? How will you save yourselves and your families from the fire? If you do not strive for this knowledge. So what therefore of those who deprive themselves, deprive themselves of this knowledge. The scholars, they say, be aware of the letter meme when it comes to knowledge. Be aware of the two memes when it comes to knowledge. Be aware of the mustahi and be aware of the mustakbir. Be aware, do not be mustahi when it comes to knowledge. Do not allow your shyness to prevent you from seeking knowledge of your religion. And similarly, 
do not be from the other meme, the mustakbir, the arrogant one, those who are too shy and those who are too arrogant to attend the gatherings of knowledge. Those two memes must be warned from when it comes to the issue of knowledge. Shyness is something good, but not if it prevents you from learning your religion. Arrogance is something dispraiseworthy anyway. So what therefore of this characteristic when it is aligned with the issue of knowledge that there are those too arrogant to attend the gatherings of knowledge? They think they know it already. They think they have too much of the knowledge that they do not need the gatherings anymore. That arrogance is only depriving you Depriving you, it is not depriving or harming anyone else. It is not depriving or harming those who are in attendance. Your arrogance only deprives you. So those two memes, shyness and arrogance, not when it comes to knowledge. Come and sit in the gatherings of knowledge. Study and benefit. Learn for yourselves. Learn to remove that ignorance and to remove the ignorance from your families, and in particular, when it comes to a topic of this nature, the six pillars of Iman, the six pillars of Iman, that you are taught to memorize as a child, Iman in Allah, Iman in the angels, in the books, in the prophets, in the day of judgment, in the decree. So are we all in a position whereby we can explain those six pillars of Iman in detail? Are we in a position of knowledge regarding those basics of our religion? Then that is what we wish to address now in this course over the next few sessions, to look at this basic principle of Islam, these six fundamentals of the religion, and in order to educate ourselves regarding them, so that we know, and we can teach our children thereafter, and we can teach our communities and neighbors, the basics of Salafiyyah, the basics of the aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, the most basic of the basics in the principles of the religion. So you have the workbooks, the workbooks which have been completed up to the fifth pillar, and when it comes to the sixth pillar, then we'll dictate the additional questions to you, inshaAllah. Those workbooks, follow them through. Insha'Allah ta'ala, the vast majority of it, we will cover through these classes. You'll be able to fill in the answers. Those who are following online, the workbook is available to download, copy, print, and then you can fill in the answers also. So we begin, insha'Allah ta'ala, seeking aid and assistance in Allah. 
And we begin firstly with the hadith of Jibreel. Because when we talk about the issues of Iman, then the core, the core of Iman, the issues related to it can be found in the hadith of Jibreel. Firstly then, what is the hadith of Jibreel? What actually happens in this hadith that is famously known as the hadith of Jibreel? In this particular hadith, it is an event which occurred on one occasion, the Prophet ﷺ was sitting amongst his companions. They were sitting, and then all of a sudden, a man walked in. They were having their gathering, and then a man walked in. This man that walked in, it is mentioned in the narration, that he was somebody that did not have any signs of traveling upon him. He looked clean and neat and tidy. Did not look like he had traveled a distance from somewhere far away to get to Medina. Why did they mention that in the narration? لا يرى عليه أثر السفر that there were no signs of him being a traveler. They mentioned that because they also added on, وَلَا يَعْرِفُهُ مِنَّا أَحَدٍ But none of us knew him. So now it becomes something strange. This is a man who is not known to the locals. So he is not a local. But then if he's not a local, he's come from somewhere afar, you would expect there to be signs of traveling upon him. But that didn't exist either. He looked clean and fresh. Not a sign upon him that he has traveled from a distance to get there. But at the same time, he wasn't a local, so he must have traveled from somewhere so now this was something strange that they were witnessing. But then on top of that, this man with extremely white clothes, shadidu thiyab, and extremely black hair, shadidu sha'r, he then walked in. Imagine the gathering is now going on. He walked in from the back. You would expect somebody who walks in late. The gathering is already going on. You would expect them to walk in and sit. Where? At the back over there. But instead the man walked in through everyone. Right to the front. Right in front of the Prophet ﷺ sat there. So again the companions were surprised. Surprised at the actions of this strange man. He came in, the gathering was already happening. He didn't just sit at the back, instead he comes all the way through. 
right to the front and sits in front of the Prophet ﷺ. So they were surprised at these actions. Then this man begins questioning the Prophet ﷺ. So he says to him, Ya Muhammad, أَخْبِرْنِي عَنِ الْإِسْلَامِ O Muhammad, tell me about Islam. So now the Sahaba were surprised again. Why were they surprised at that statement? Because he said, O oh Muhammad, tell me about Islam. The Sahaba, the companions, did not used to refer to the Prophet ﷺ as Muhammad. They used to refer to him as, Ya Rasulullah, Ya Nabi Allah, O Messenger of Allah, O Prophet of Allah. They didn't used to say, O Muhammad. In fact, even in the Qur'an, then the Prophet ﷺ is mentioned as the Prophet of Allah, the Messenger of Allah, the Slave of Allah. And there are only a few places where he is referred to and addressed as Muhammad. So this was something strange, that the man comes in and refers to the messenger with his name, O Muhammad, tell me about Islam. So the Prophet ﷺ tells him, that Islam is, أَن تَشْهَدَ أَن لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَأَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ وَتُقِيمُ الصَّلَةِ وَتُؤْتِيَ الزَّكَاءِ وَتَسُومُ رَمَضَانِ وَتَحُجَّ الْبَيْتِ إِنْ اسْتَطَعْتَ إِلَيْهِ سَبِيلًا أَوْ تَحُجُّ بَيْتَ اللَّهِ Then the Prophet ﷺ told him, Islam is to testify the shahadatain that there is no deity worthy of worship in truth except Allah. And that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And to establish the prayer. And to perform the fasting. And to give the zakat. And to perform the hajj if you are able. So then the man said, Sadaqt. That's right. You've spoken the truth. So again the Sahaba were surprised. Look at all of these multiple things happening. There are things out of the ordinary, surprising things. Again now surprising to the Sahaba, the man is saying to the Prophet ﷺ, that's right, you've spoken the truth. They were surprised. Yes, أَلُوهُ وَيُصَدِّقُهُ The man is here asking the Prophet ﷺ the questions, and now he's telling him, that's right, your answer is right. How can he be telling him your answer is right? He's the one asking. The messenger is the one that knows, not him. So now they were surprised again. But then the man carries on and asks the next question. And he says, iman. Tell me about Iman. Then the Prophet ﷺ tells him, أَن تُؤْمِنَ بِاللَّهِ وَمَلَائِكَتِهِ وَكُتُبِهِ وَرُسُولِهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَأَن تُؤْمِنَ بِالْقَدَرِ خَيْرِهِ وَشَرِّهِ The six pillars of Iman. And that is the point 
that we are going to be discussing. The hadith then carries on when the man asks about the decree or asks about ihsan and the Prophet ﷺ tells him أَن تَعْبُدَ اللَّهَ كَأَنَّكَ تَرَاهُ فَإِن لَمْ تَكُنْ تَرَاهُ فَإِنَّهُ يَرَاكُ That you worship Allah as though you can see Him. Meaning that you worship Allah with recognition that Allah sees you. Because even though you can't see Him, indeed Allah sees you. And then he asks him about the signs of the hour and when the hour is going to be. The Prophet ﷺ tells him الْمَسْؤُولُ عَنْهَا بِعَلَمَ مِنَ السَّائِلِ The one asked the question is no more knowledgeable than the one asking. Neither I nor you know when the day of judgment is going to be. And then he tells him about the signs of the day of judgment. And then in the end, the Prophet ﷺ says to the companions, Do you know who that was? They say, Allah and His Messenger know best. And so then he tells them that it was Jibreel alayhi salam. Atakum yu'allimukum amra deenikum. He came, yu'allimukum amra deenikum. To teach you the affair of your religion. That was Jibreel. He came to teach you of your religion. There is another version of that narration where it mentions at the end, when the Prophet ﷺ told them that, some of the Sahaba then realizing that was Jibreel, they got up and they went out, because by now Jibreel had got up and left. So then they went out after him. As soon as they got out, and Jibreel had just gone out as well, they went out after him, disappeared. Nowhere to be seen, nowhere in sight, gone. Vanished. Jibreel salam. So that is the narration known as the hadith of Jibreel. Because you have certain hadith within the sunnah, they become popular by a particular name. This hadith has become popular and known by that name, the hadith of Jibreel. And there are others in the sunnah known by particular names. This hadith, some of the scholars give it another name. Before, well, anybody know? Anybody know what the scholars also call this hadith? Another name they give this hadith? Huh? Ummu Sunnah. Ummu Sunnah. Meaning basically the head of the sunnah, the core of the sunnah, the mother of the sunnah, that is a name that the scholars refer to with the hadith of Jibreel, Ummu Sunnah. Just like Al-Fatiha is known as Surah Al-Fatiha, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, that is known as Ummu Al-Kitab, Ummu Al-Quran, why are they known as the Umm? What does it mean? Ummul Quran, Ummul Sunnah. Anybody? There are travelers here, Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool. We have to honor our guests. So the guests can give us the answer. Okay, the resident has taken the rights of the guest, but the answer is correct. 
that these narrations or this narration and that surah, they are known as the um, which means the head of something, the core of something, the mother literally. Um, because all of the other affairs revolve around and return to that point. So they say, Al-Fatiha, the meanings that you have within Al-Fatiha, the rest of the Qur'an as a whole, it revolves around and comes back to those meanings. Because in Al-Fatiha, what do you have? Meanings of Al-Rububiyyah, Al-Uluhiyyah, Al-Asma'u, Al-Sifat, all of those things are mentioned. The rest of the Qur'an, all of it revolves around those aspects of Tawheed. This hadith is known as the Ummu Sunnah, because the Sunnah as a whole, many aspects of it revolve around these points. The five pillars of Islam, which are mentioned in this hadith. The six pillars of Iman, mentioned in this hadith. Ihsan, mentioned in this hadith. The day of judgment, the signs of the day of judgment. All of these affairs mentioned in this hadith. And that builds up the core of much of the religion. The five pillars of Islam, the six pillars of Iman. The basics are all there. Hence it is known as the Ummah, the head or the core of the Sunnah. That is one title given to it. Another one of the questions here mentioned on the workbook, the manner we're going to go through is not question by question. The lecture will be delivered on that topic. You are expected to pay attention and fill in the answers as you find them during the lecture. It will not be a case of going through question by question. But generally now just to add on some of the points to begin with, what are some of the benefits from that hadith of Jibreel we've just mentioned in terms of the student of knowledge? There are certain benefits we learn from the way that a student of knowledge should behave when coming to the gatherings of knowledge. We see that Jibreel was immaculate in his appearance. White, clean clothes, black hair, clean and tidy. It is therefore a characteristic for the student of knowledge that he should come to the gatherings of knowledge in a neat and tidy and clean appearance. That is from the mannerisms of the student of knowledge. Just as Jibreel did when he came there. Clean and tidy appearance, looking like you are serious and ready for knowledge. Not coming with the same clothes that you are wearing out in the gym or in the football field. But rather you come ready and neat and tidy for the gatherings of knowledge. Also, the manner in which Jibreel came and sat down. It's mentioned in the narration that he came and sat with his legs crossed under him, 
facing the Prophet ﷺ. The scholars they say, it is therefore a characteristic of the student of knowledge that he should be sat in front of the teacher, focused, facing that way, attentive. And that is why, I'll tell you an example, not that we want to embarrass anybody now, but an example for it to be told. In Medina, in Saudi, the mosques actually are very similar in their format to what you see here. You have an area for the imam, and they normally put the desk right in that area just like this. You have this type of uh, backrest on the first row in the Saudi mosques. Same backrest you've got here. So the layout is very similar when a class is going on in some of these mosques. Masjid Quba, Qiblatayn, etc. It's a very similar layout. However, the students, they would come to the class an hour before the class begins. An hour before it begins. So 7.30, they would be here 6.30. Why? To make sure that they could get the first row in front of the teacher. To be right there as the first row of students in front of the teacher. So they would come an hour before, this section here, this section here, maybe two hours before that's gone. Maybe two hours before, and that's not an exaggeration. That is not an exaggeration. Up to two or three hours beforehand, this area would be gone. Students would be here, sat down, maybe leave their bag, go make wudu, whatever. This area would be full. This immediate area before, around the teacher. Then you have all of the rest of the backrest over there, the rest of the backrest over there. That would be empty. Because the next bunch of students who can't find the backrest on the first row here, would sit directly behind there. Because that is the closest place next to the teacher. Then the next bunch right there behind that, meaning you would have the center, which is where the teacher's desk is, and then the population of students, the mass would build from that center outwards. So nobody would go and sit at the edges over there for the sake of getting the backrest. If they didn't get the backrest right here at the front of the desk, then it would be no backrest on the second row. Then on the third row, then on the fourth row, working outwards from this area. Not working outwards far away from the center for the sake of getting the backrest. Mentioning no names for those who are sitting on the backrest on the edges. But that is the way it was. Students there, they would recognize. The core is to sit right there. And I'm telling you, there used to be classes. You get there, you get a place maybe a meter from the teacher. And that's if you got there an hour or two hours before. You sit down. Maybe you need to make wudu. So that's okay, you can leave your book there. You've got that place, you're there, you're sat. You can leave your book temporarily just to go make wudu. You go and make wudu, you come back to your place, and your place is there. You sit down, but now all of a sudden, 
Your place has decreased by 30 centimeters on every side. By the push of everybody who has come in, and all of the students coming in tight and tight, your space has all of a sudden decreased when you've come back in the space of five minutes. They would be eager to sit right there, in front of the teacher, knowing that that is the place where the maximum focus will be. When you are right there in front, and that is taken from this hadith, that Jibreel alayhi salam came, and didn't sit anywhere else, came and sat right in front of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Also, from the mannerisms of a student of knowledge, what else can we learn? The actual method of sitting. Now that you're sat wherever you're sat, the actual posture that you sit in. Jibreel alayhi salam came in, sat down with his legs folded in on his knees, sat on his legs, facing the Prophet The scholars, they say, this indicates that you should sit in a certain posture. Meaning, when you come and sit in the gathering of knowledge, you should not be slouching. You should not be relaxing and lying back. You should not be with your hand down on the ground here, slouching that way, turning that way, leaning that way. Rather, you should be sat in a proper upright posture in front of the teacher. That is the etiquette of the student of knowledge. Not to come and sit and be slouching this way or slouching that way, leaning back, lying down. That is not from the characteristic or the etiquette of the student of knowledge. So even the method and the manner in which you sit. These types of things, they have become rare. In our times, it's a rarity because when you think about it, it's a rarity to even get the people to the classes, let alone the mannerisms and the etiquettes of then sitting in the class. So this is important for us now to learn, to learn the mannerisms of the student because by learning the mannerisms of the student of knowledge, it will aid you in your seeking of knowledge. By knowing the etiquettes of seeking knowledge, it will help you in your progress of seeking knowledge. So there are some of the etiquettes that we see from Jibreel salam, and they are the etiquettes of the student of knowledge. In that hadith, we learned that Jibreel salam came and asked the Prophet wasallam about Iman and Islam as the first two questions. Tell me about Islam, tell me about Iman. What is the difference between Islam and Iman? If somebody said to you now, what is the difference between Iman and Islam? Then what do you say to them? Anybody? That is one way to explain it. Islam and Iman, when they are mentioned in terms of requiring a difference between them, they are mentioned together, then Islam typically refers to the outward affairs. The outward affairs. Prayer, 
physical outward it is seen. Zakat, physically giving over the money. Fasting, a physical act with your body. Hajj, a physical act. The outward physical parts of Islam. Whereas Iman is the internal aspect. Belief in Allah, belief in the angels, belief in the prophets, the books, the day of judgment, the decree. The internal aspect is the Iman. So that is one way to understand it. The scholars do say, if Islam is mentioned by itself, then it incorporates Iman. And if Iman is mentioned by itself, it incorporates Islam. But if they are mentioned together, then Islam refers to the outward affairs, and Iman refers to the inward affairs. That is the difference you could mention regarding Islam and Iman. Also, in regards to the Shahada, when you say, La ilaha illallah, that there is no God to be worshipped in truth except Allah. All of the other God's people worship are false. And they are not real, they are not true. The only true deity, God, to be worshipped is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, Anna Muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh. That Muhammad is the messenger and slave of Allah. When you testify, Ashhadu anna Muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh. That I testify Muhammad is the servant and messenger of Allah. Then there are four key things that you must bear in mind with that testification of yours. That testification of yours, it incorporates four key meanings. What are they? What are the four key points that you mean when you say, I testify Muhammad is the servant and messenger of Allah? The first, somebody... The first though in order. Ta'atuhu fima amara. To obey him in everything he commanded us with. Remember this now. This is the meaning of Ashhadu anna Muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh. That you will firstly, number one, obey him in everything he commanded you. How can you testify he is the servant and messenger of Allah and you will not obey him in what he commanded you? Of course you must obey him in everything he commanded you with. Secondly, Secondly, that you will stay away from everything he prohibited. How can you testify he is the messenger of Allah? And then still go and do what everything, go and do everything he prohibited you from. How can that be? You must stay away from what he prohibited you. If you are truthful in your testimony, that he is the messenger of Allah, came with the revelation from Allah. Thirdly, That you will believe and have certainty in everything he told us about. Everything about what happens when we die. 
everything about paradise and hellfire, everything about the day of judgment when everybody who has died will be brought back to life again. All of that you believe in it with certainty. And the fourth point, Allah يعبد الله إلا بما شرع That you will only worship Allah in the way that He legislated. You will only worship Allah in the way that He legislated. Meaning you will not do bid'ah, you will not do innovation, you will only worship Allah in the method that He has legislated. So when we say you will obey Him in what He commanded, and you will stay away from what He prohibited, in the Qur'an Allah tells us, وَمَا آتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوهُ وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُ That which He has commanded you with, then take it. And that which He has prohibited you from, then abstain from it. And as for believing Him in everything He has commanded us with, then that is just as Allah mentioned right at the beginning of the Qur'an, الَّذِينَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْغَيْبَ The believers are those who have yaqeen and certainty in the unseen. Everything the Messenger has informed us of, we have certainty in. And that you will only worship Allah in the way that He taught us. Then again that is proven in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. فَمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُوا لِقَاءَ رَبِّهِ فَلِعْمَلْ عَمَلًا صَالِحًا وَلَا يُشْرِكْ بِعِبَادَةِ رَبِّهِ أَحَدًا That whomsoever wishes to meet his Lord, then let him do the righteous actions. You know that you will meet your Lord. So do the righteous actions upon the sunnah and do not commit any shirk. Those are the four points. You will obey him in what he commanded. You will abstain from what he prohibited. You will believe everything he informed us of. And you will only worship Allah in the method that he taught us. Also in the hadith, we hear about the issue of Ihsan. When Jibreel asks, tell me about Ihsan. Ihsan أَنْ تَعْبُدَ اللَّهَ كَأَنَّكَ تَرَاهُ فَإِنْ لَمْ تَكُنْ تَرَاهُ فَإِنَّهُ يَرَاكُ That you worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as though you see Him. And of course you cannot but know that indeed Allah sees you. So ihsan, it is to perfect your worship. To perfect your worship, knowing that Allah sees you in doing your worship. So when you're worshipping, don't do it as a habit. Don't do it as something you need to get over and done with and be finished from. Don't do your prayer so you can get it out of the way. Don't do your other affairs of worship to get them out of the way. Ihsan is that you do your worship recognizing and realizing that Allah sees you in that worship you are performing. Allah sees you in what you are doing, in your prayer that you are praying, in the Qur'an that you are reading, in the charity that you are giving, in every worship you do that Allah sees you. That is the pinnacle, 
the best you can reach to be upon that pinnacle in performing your worship with purity, sincerity, with perfection for Allah upon the sunnah. So then comes this question now in your workbook. Regarding the circles, how do we understand the issue of Islam and Iman and Ihsan in regards to those three circles? In the hadith of Jibreel, those are the three things Jibreel asked about, about Islam, about Iman, about Ihsan. How do those three fit into those circles? So the outer circle, the widest circle, is the circle of Islam. When a person enters Islam, he enters into that wider fold and circle of the religion of Islam. But then as the person increases in his worship and his actions, his obedience, and drops his sinning and his wrongdoing, he increases in his iman until he reaches the level of being a mu'min into the level of now iman. So that is the smaller circle now. Less people get to that level. To the level of being a mu'min. Everybody enters into Islam, you are Muslim. But is everybody a mu'min at the level of iman? High level of iman? Not everybody is. Some people reach that circle. Then after that, the more you worship Allah, the more you perfect your worship, the more you drop your sins, the more you perform the obligatory and the supererogatory and the mustahab, and you leave the makruh as well as the haram, even the mubah, you do not waste your time in it. The more a person perfects himself and increases in iman, then he reaches the level of being a muhsin, a person of ihsan, and that is only a few, that is the smallest circle, the highest level of the circle to reach. And that is why we discussed a long time ago with the issue of Iman. If somebody says to you, are you a mu'min? What do you say? You say, inshallah, who said that? You say, inshallah. Somebody says, are you a mu'min? You say, inshallah. So you don't know? You don't know if you're Muslim or not? And what's that? Are you there? Yes, you are a mu'min, mashaAllah. Got to that circle. I'm past, I'm in the second circle of iman. Rather the salaf they used to say, or the explanation of it is, they mentioned this in Babul Istifna, if the person is asking you, are you a mu'min, i.e. are you a Muslim, 
then of course your answer is, yes, absolutely, of course I am. You cannot doubt whether you are Muslim. You don't say, inshallah, I'm a mu'min, if that is their intent. But if their intent is, are you a mu'min, i.e., have you reached the level of iman in those circles? Then you say, inshallah, inshallah I have, inshallah I hope I've reached that level. So if it's talking about that, inshallah. If it's talking about, are you a mu'min, i.e., are you a Muslim? Then absolutely, yes. Then you don't say, inshallah. So that is the difference in that. That is the opening section that we'll conclude upon for today. The opening section where we've discussed in brief the hadith of Jibreel. We've discussed some of the basic aspects of Islam and Iman and Ihsan. We've talked about the basics of the Shahada. Next session, we'll go into the topic of the Tawheed and the Iman in Allah. As you can see on the next page of the workbook, it talks about Al-Rububiyyah, Al-Uluhiyyah, the names and attributes of Allah. And then also after that, it goes into the opposite, Kufr. What is Kufr? And what are the different types of Kufr? What are the different types of Shirk? All of that in the next session, insha'Allah ta'ala. There will be a lot more detail, a lot more categories. The categories of shirk, the categories of kufr, the different types. All of that you'll have to pay attention to next session, insha'Allah ta'ala. So that will be also on the topic of iman in Allah. The session after that, iman in the angels. The session after that, iman in the prophets and the books in one session. That can be summarized and there is less detail to cover. Then after that, in the decree, and the, or the day of judgment and the decree. So it will be approximately six sessions, inshallah, maybe going on to seven to complete this course. And by the end of it then, you will have a comprehensive answer to these aspects of Islam. Particularly, if you're talking to a non-Muslim and you're giving da'wah, you will be in a position where you can properly explain the fundamentals and the basics of the belief of a Muslim. So that is where we'll conclude today. Any questions on that? So far what we've covered, any questions regarding that? Or anything else that may not be related to the topic? If sisters have questions, they can send them forward. We have an opportunity now. Repeat that. So that bit about the Iman, in the books of Aqidah, in the books of Tawheed, they have the chapter, they mention it, the, the issue of Al-Istithna. That's the topic if you're going to research it. Al-Istithna fil-Iman. In that chapter, they mention these points. Remember we said before, Iman and Islam have two meanings, outward and inward. But, they can incorporate one another. So Iman mentioned by itself incorporates Islam. Islam mentioned by itself incorporates Iman. So if somebody says to you, are you a mu'min? 
could they mean, can that question mean, in terms of the incorporation of the issue of Islam, are you a Muslim? It can mean that. Are you a mu'min? It can mean, are you a Muslim? Are you upon Islam and Iman and the pillars of Iman, etc.? If that is the intent, then of course, absolutely, yes. You do not say, Naam, I am a mu'min, i.e., Naam, I am a Muslim, insha'Allah. You cannot say, I am a Muslim, insha'Allah. So in that case, it is mu'min, certainly. But then the scholars, they explain, and this is in refutation of the Ash'a'ira and the Maturidiyya and their likes, who have problems in this issue of al-istifna. They say then, if the person means, are you a mu'min, they are testing you, are you at the level of iman in those circles, yani? Are you above Islam? You're not just Muslim, you are mu'min. Have you reached that level? Then you can't say, yes, of course. The salaf wouldn't say that. You say, inshallah, inshallah, I am mu'min, inshallah, I am muhsin. Inshallah, we have reached those levels, we hope and we try. So with that, it is inshallah, yes. But with the meaning of Islam, then of course not. You have to say absolutely Muslim or absolutely mu'min. That is the basic explanation they give. Jibreel alayhi salam, when he came, he referred to the Prophet as Muhammad. Ya Muhammad, the point we were making on that was that this was one of the uh, factors that were to be found strange by the companions. There were several factors strange in this scenario. The scholars, they mention this in their explanations, that there were several strange things going on. They have this man walking in, who doesn't look like a traveler, but they know he is, because he's not a local. But he doesn't look like a traveler, nothing on him, clean, tidy, strange. He comes and he doesn't sit at the back, he sits right at the front, strange. He refers to the Prophet by his name, O Muhammad, instead of Ya Rasulullah, strange. He then tells the Prophet, you're right, when he gives him the answer. Strange. Scholars, they put these into a list of all of the strange things that were going on. All of the strange things that were out of the norm. And then all of it made sense in the end, when it was said to him, that, uh, when it was said to them that this was Jibreel. As for the statement of what is the wisdom then it can be said, as some scholars say, that this was to keep with the possible norms of how the Bedouins used to refer to the Prophet ﷺ. When Bedouins used to come from the outside, they used to say, O oh Muhammad, from their nature and their lack of recognition that we need to say, O oh Messenger of Allah, they would say, O oh Muhammad. So some of the scholars say it was in line with that, that Jibreel came and said, O oh Muhammad, in line with how the Bedouins would do when they came from the outside. That is one explanation the scholars mention. But the point of it being a strange factor amongst the strange factors is something the scholars highlight further. 
a student coming late in the days of the university in Medina, if a student came late, there were some teachers who would have an absolute no exceptions rule that the student does not and will not enter the class in the first place. Zero tolerance. The class begins at 8 a.m. Anybody comes to the door at 8.01, they were not permitted to step foot inside. How dare you be late? Student of knowledge, late, it is not something you do. And why a person may say, but things happen. Things happen and you get late. Really, think about the affair. If somebody told you, and these are the examples everybody always gives because they are the obvious and easiest to understand. Somebody told you, there is someone rich giving away blank or checks for a million pounds each. He's going to be there. Everybody who wants one of these million pound checks, and there's thousands of them he signed out, he's going to be distributing them from 8 a.m. There will not be a single one who dares to be late. They will all wake up with their alarms at 4 a.m. and prepare themselves to go and be standing outside of the door before, miles before 8 a.m. to make sure they get in. Nothing will come as a priority over them that day. And we all know that of ourselves. If you were told with absolute certainty, you can go get yourself a million pounds for free. But you've got to be at this particular place by 8 a.m. If it was in London, you would go and get a hotel the night before. You would go the night before, get a hotel, get up at 3, 4 a.m., make sure you get to that place by 6 a.m., 5 a.m. to make sure you beat the queues. Just like when they have what they call the sales at certain times of the year, then you find the queues at 6 a.m. Truthfully, if a person had the intention, the desire, the zeal, then it would be an extreme, extreme rare event that you are late for a class. One in a year. Twice in a year. Push it out a little bit. If you were genuine about seeking knowledge, you would prepare, you would get ready, you would bring your books and your notes, and you'd be here half an hour before the class is going to begin. To sit there, to revise over what you did last week, to discuss with your colleagues what you covered, and what's going to be covered. Those who are genuine and sincere, that is the way. Like we mentioned before, classes of the scholars without any exaggeration. Two or three hours before, students would be there to put their bags down, sit down in preparation at the front. So the issue of being late, it is an issue which is a disaster amongst the people. And it defines the student of knowledge in truth from the one 
who is not at the level of being from those real students of knowledge. The one who is late and regularly late, then it's something that is a degradation, lowers that student. But those are the types of things that cannot be emphasized here. Those are the types of things that cannot be emphasized here. It cannot be. There has to be a line that you have to draw and you have to recognize that this is the way things are. If we had that type of rule here in the classes, that you must be here before the start time, then after two weeks there'd be barely three people left. So we know that the state of the people is a state of slackness overall. That, and that is because of the mentality. The mentality of everyone. It's a casual thing. You get ready at two minutes to eight, and you're going to stroll in at five past. He's not going to begin till five past anyway. He always gets there about five past, seven past anyway. That mentality is not the mentality of a student of knowledge. That's the first thing. So for those who are sincere and genuine, rectify and fix that up to begin with. Then what was the question? About the one who comes late, should he sit at the front or should he sit at the back? Now we'll get to the lesser important thing after the important thing has been discussed. About not being late in the first place. But if you are late, then it's not, not recommended to do this in terms of coming right to the front, passing through and trying to squash in at the front. You wouldn't do that. This is mentioned in the hadith of Jibreel. Jibreel alayhi salam did that. It was one of the strange affairs to the companions. But he did that and it was for a purpose. He was going to do that now, ask those questions to educate the Sahaba. That was a purpose. You wouldn't typically come and break through everybody and try and squeeze in at the front. You come late, then you don't deserve to sit at the front in the first place. You don't deserve to come and have a place at the front near the core of the gathering. Sit at the back as you are late. Sit at the back, the ones who are not from the senior students, the, the serious students, you don't deserve to be at the front in the first place. Anything else? Issue of? Mentality. Mentality. So the question regarding worship and it becoming a habit, a robotic, automatic type of thing as some of the scholars describe it as, it's an automatic action that just occurs. It's prayer time, okay, we got to pray. Wudu prayer without focus, without nothing, like your body is praying but your mind is somewhere else. Or you have this 
idea and mentality and we talked about this briefly in Ramadan when it comes to Taraweeh the mentality of the people okay it's an issue of a countdown Alhamdulillah it's two done then after four Alhamdulillah it's four done now that's six done now eight done Alhamdulillah all the way you're just counting down the raka'at worship you need to recognize as we've just said here now with the issue of Ihsan Allah watches and sees you in your worship you're doing you need to recognize every time you stand there for prayer, don't have the mentality, okay, I just got to pray and get back and I've got to get to the meeting at this time. When you're in that prayer, remember, you are living and breathing and existing for the purpose of that. For the purpose of worship. Not for the purpose of your meeting to arrange your plans and to do this and whatever else. Your very existence is being actualized when you are engaged in worship. So don't flip it 180 degrees. Don't flip it and make it sound like and make it appear in your lives as though your worldly affairs are the purpose and the objective of your days. Rather, it is the worship in your days that is the purpose and the objective. So that's what the meaning of the narration is. كُنْ فِي الدُّنْيَا كَأَنَّكَ غَرِيبَ وَعَابِرَ سَبِيلٍ be in this world as though you're a stranger or a passerby. Do not make the world the focus, make your worship the focus. That mentality must be altered. In the narration of Bilal, when the Prophet said to Bilal, Qum ya Bilal, arise O Bilal, adhin, make the adhan, arihna bis salah. Give us tranquility with the prayer. The Prophet when he became preoccupied with the affairs, he would turn to the prayer to gain peace and tranquility and serenity and comfort. Whereas now the people cannot wait to get out and get back to their whatever they're doing in their worldly affairs. You must remember when you're praying, Allah sees you and you're being judged on your worship. Your very existence on this earth is for the worship. So if you're rushing through all of that automatically mentality of getting it out the way, so you can get back to your worldly affairs, then remember, you are pushing aside the actual purpose of why you're breathing and living to something, to giving priority to something, which is not the purpose of your existence. You are pushing through your prayer to get back, you are pushing aside the purpose of your existence to get back to something that is not the purpose of your existence. You are pushing aside and getting through something which you are going to be held accountable upon on the day of judgment. First thing you will be tested on is your prayer. Whereas your contract and your business and your work, that isn't the key. That isn't the focus of your test on the day of judgment. So remember the purpose of your existence. Remember what it will occur in the hereafter with it. What is going to happen in the hereafter with your worship. That's what you're going to be tested on. And remember the ihsan, that Allah sees you when you do your worship. How can you make this an automatic thing, fly through it, when it is something that you are being tested on, it's being written down and Allah sees you doing it. So a person needs to recognize some of those points in order to realize why you're doing this worship and the purpose behind it, and that Allah sees you, and that this is your existence and the purpose of it, and the objective in the hereafter and your test upon it. That is what we must remember in our worship so it doesn't become an automatic type of thing. It doesn't become a robotic thing we're just doing with our bodies without our minds in it.
Anything else? Otherwise, we'll conclude upon that point. Last question. Go on. The minimum requirement for every Muslim is that they must, must educate themselves regarding the religion to the level, the minimum level that is needed by necessity to be able to worship Allah properly. That is what is mentioned by the scholars. That you must gain that minimum level of knowledge that enables you to worship Allah. Because if you don't gain that minimum level of knowledge, it means you are not able to worship Allah properly. And that can't be. How can you live your lives not worshiping Allah properly? You must gain the level of knowledge that enables you to worship Allah properly. Therefore, you must have knowledge of these principles of Iman. You must have knowledge of Tawheed and Aqeedah so you don't fall into shirk. You must have knowledge of how to make wudu properly, otherwise you can't pray properly. You must have knowledge of how to pray properly itself, otherwise you're praying wrong every day. You must have knowledge of prayer, of fasting and its rulings, otherwise Ramadan comes and goes every year doing it wrong. There's a minimum level of knowledge you must have. Therefore, there's a minimum level of studying you must do. Every person... Really, it's not an excuse. Every person should be attending lessons of knowledge. Even if you're a person, you say, I'm old, I'm this, I'm that, I'm not a student, I can't study, then come generally to benefit. If that is all your level is, then alhamdulillah, some people, that's all their level is, come to generally benefit and hear about Islam. Every person should be making the effort to gather in the gatherings of knowledge. Once a week, twice a week, a couple of hours of your week. So the minimum is a person needs to have the knowledge that enables them to worship their Lord. If you don't know how to make wudu yet, then you're in a problem. A big problem, severe problem. You don't know how to pray properly, you don't know the sunnah, severe problem. You don't know tawheed and these pillars of iman and you can't explain them, nothing, severe problem. This is a level of knowledge every Muslim needs to learn. Every Muslim needs to gain. So every Muslim needs to strive with that. Strive with attending to gain that minimum level of knowledge where you are upon Tawheed and Aqeedah and know the affairs of Shirk and you know the minimum level of knowledge that enables you to properly worship Allah. Without that minimum level of knowledge, how are you going to make wudu properly? How are you going to pray properly? How are you going to fast properly? How are you going to go do your hajj? So everybody has to strive for that minimum level and that's going to come through these gatherings of knowledge. This course now, it's that minimum level basic minimum level of understanding the pillars of iman properly so strive over these next sessions bring your families bring the ones who are new to the da'wah we'll keep it simple and easy nothing complicated and there are topics that are encouraging to people to learn about the angels and we're going to talk about different things about the angels interesting topics regarding the angels when were they created how were they created do they marry do they eat lots of topics about the angels too very interesting topics that are good for people and for da'wah. So encourage your friends and families to come in these gatherings. And inshallah ta'ala they will benefit from them. We'll have to round off on that point for tonight then. And we'll, we'll continue in a fortnight. As you know, this is every fortnight. 
in the other Friday, it's Abu Iyad. So in a fortnight, we'll come back and carry on with the next session, inshallah. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.